Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning, congregation, and good morning, podgregation. Uh, it's good to have you all here this morning. I'm so glad I didn't live back then, because that, that's the kind of music you'd have to listen to all the time. It, it's a nice little break, but uh, I'll take middle. Thank you very much. Hope you're all enjoying this September. Um, you know, every, uh, every location uh, has its pros and cons. Uh, here in Minnesota, our con is... November, December, January, and February. But one pro is September. I, I don't think any place does September better than, than Minnesota. Uh, I, just, I just love it. It's perfect weather. It's getting cooler now, except for today. It's kind of hot, but uh, I just love it. The cool breeze in the evening. So hope you're getting out and enjoying that because winter is coming. So suck it in while you can. Um, before I get into my message, I have a, a preliminary word I want to share. And I want to apologize to our pod creation because this is an in-house matter for the congregation, uh, but I encourage you not to tune me out uh, for the next five minutes or so because uh, I'll be giving a biblical teaching that uh, will apply in different ways to all of our lives. Uh, I, I've been asked by the leadership team to, to just say a word about why we recommend, strongly recommend, wearing masks in the building here. Now, the very word mask, I know, is uh, now acquired all this baggage. Who would have thought that mask would acquire the various meanings that it has in our culture right now, but it's got caught up in the political uh, divide and the culture wars and all the rest. But I'd like to, us to set all that aside for a moment, if you can. And, and I want to just consider this from a distinctly kingdom perspective. Because see, out in the broader culture, this whole mask thing is, uh, it's all about my rights and my protection and my freedom, my, 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 my. But in the kingdom, we're to have a very different kind of mindset, aren't we? Uh, we're, we're, we're to put the interest of others ahead of ourselves. Here's what Paul says in, in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Look up to others. Never look down on someone. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but the, to the interests of others. Let that mind be in you, which was in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus, though he was uh, God, he set aside the benefits, the blessings, the privileges of, of his deity in order to enter into solidarity with us and become a human being because he put our interests above his own interests. We needed him to do that, and so he did that at cost to himself. That's the mindset that all kingdom people are supposed to have. We're to imitate Jesus. Uh, to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. That's, that's to be our lifestyle. This is just what, what following Jesus looks like. Put the interests of others before yourself. So I wear a mask, not primarily to protect myself. I had COVID and I've had, I'm, I'm vaxxed, and so I'm, uh, I, 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 I'm pretty protected. Um, and I'm not that risk-averse anyways. My wife wishes I was, had more risk aversion, but I don't, I, I don't worry about stuff very much. So it's not primarily for my sake. Uh, it's for your sake. Um, it's for the sake of others, because we got to share the same air. And the experts now tell us that uh, if you're vaxxed, the, the, you've got a lot of protection, but it's not 100%. And so there's still a possibility that you could acquire this virus and uh, not even know it. You may be asymptomatic, but you could pass it on. So I might contract this thing and not know it, and then I, I pass it on to you. And maybe you are also vaxxed and you don't know it. You don't have any symptoms or you think it's a little cold or something. But you bring it home to your kid who can't be vaxxed yet, or your feeble grandmother who's got uh, underlying conditions, and see whatever suffering they go through, and it's potentially fatal. Um, if there's something I could have done to have prevented that, 
then, then I bear some responsibility for that. And I don't know about you, but I don't want that in my head. The loving thing to do is to put the interest of others uh, before yourself. Now, it doesn't mean that if a person's not masked, it doesn't mean that they're not loving and they're not Christ-like. It could just be that they never thought about it this way. I think a lot of people are in that category. Mary, who runs the show here on Sunday mornings, uh, she told me the story this last week. She was at a store, and, and uh, there's a disabled person there that she got some things off the shelf for and, and helped this person out. And the store clerk noticed it. So when Mary was checking out, the store clerk said to her, and I love this quote, you seem like such a nice person. Why aren't you vaxxed? Just think about it. <laughs> this is what the culture wars does. Okay? Only mean people uh, are, are not vaxxed, apparently. But she says, why aren't you vaxxed? Mary, Mary says, well, I am vaxxed. And then she says, well, why are you wearing a mask then? And Mary said, well, it's not primarily for my sake, but it's, it's for your sake. I, I, if I have this, I don't want to pass it on to you and, uh, or, or to anyone else. And the lady goes, I had never thought of that before. That's a really good point. I think a lot of people just haven't put the two things together. So uh, just because a person doesn't have a mask on doesn't mean you can judge their character. In fact, you can't judge anyone's character based on one behavior. And besides, we're not to be judging anyone anyways. Amen? Uh, we always teach that unless someone's invited you in on their life uh, to express opinions about their life and, and to help them grow in Christ, unless that's the case, you're allowed one opinion of them, and that is that they are worth Jesus dying for. Or it could be the case that, that a person not wearing a mask is, is a very loving person. But, you know, in the, this age of the Internet, Everyone can find their own sources of information that offer their own findings, that offer their own recommendations. And it could be that this person simply doesn't think masks make any difference. Maybe this person thinks that the whole coronavirus is being blown out of proportion. That's what their sources are telling them. Um, you, you can disagree with that, and I do. I, I, I've never found any reason to trust any source beyond the CDC and the Minnesota Department of Health, because those folks are the experts. You can agree with them, but we're not allowed to judge them, judge their character based on that, because uh, they're operating with the information that they have. But if you're one of those people, I'd like to even encourage you, if you're in the house here, to be wearing a mask. Uh, if not for yourself, then just to set everyone else at ease. Let's say that you're right. You, you, you found the source that's more credible than the CDC. And, and we're all, the rest of us, being duped and silly because we're buying into this propaganda. Suppose you're right. Still, just to set other people at ease, consider wearing a mask. Uh, you know, Paul says in Romans 14 that, that those who are strong in faith should defer to the weak. So, so let's say you're strong in faith and you've got the right information for us who are weaker, uh, set us at ease and consider wearing a mask. That's the kingdom approach to this, and uh, I'd like everyone to prayerfully consider that. Okay, so we are this morning uh, continuing our series on friendship. Uh, last week we talked about friendship with God, and if you weren't here and didn't hear that message, I encourage you to get it. Uh, knowing God as friend reframes everything in, in a beautiful way, and I hope that, that, that we've been living in that and, and meditating on that this week. Uh, he's Lord, but the Lord is our friend. He's King, but the King is your friend. He's the creator of all, but the creator is your friend. It reframes everything. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And showing that friendship with God is a more mature relationship with God than a, a servant relationship. Uh, and so what we do when we walk in obedience to Christ, we, we, we do it not as a fearful servant, as a, as a willful obligation or something, but we do it out of our love for our friend and out of our confidence in his wisdom. We're friends of God. So this week, I want to talk, start talking about friendship with one another. Uh, and today, I'll, I'll just kind of lay the foundation for this by talking about friendship in the past. Uh, what, it, what it looked like in the past in order to show just how, 
how much our concept of friendship has been depleted and robbed of really significant meaning. And in the weeks to come, we'll be talking about uh, how to recover some of what they understood about friendship in the past and the way friendship is understood in the Bible. Um, I'll tell you that this message is really more of a lecture than it is a sermon, uh, but it's a very important lecture, and I think you'll find that it's an eye-opening lecture. As I was researching for this, uh, I just found a lot of things that I didn't know and that were, uh, I think, really important. Uh, I'll take a moment out here to give you this advertisement. There's a book by Wesley Hill called Spiritual Friendship. It's really good, and a lot of what I'll be sharing today uh, comes right out of, of this book. I'll also tell you that um, uh, Wesley Hill will be on our, our Musecast on, on Tuesday. Uh, Shauna and Dan are going to interview him. He agreed to do that. So thank you, Wesley, for uh, that wonderful gift, and I encourage you to tune in on Tuesdays. End of commercial. So here's the deal. In the ancient world, the question of what is a true friend was a really big deal. And you can tell it's a really big deal because uh, many of the most famous philosophers, Plato and Aristotle and Cicero and others, uh, wrote on the topic. It was a thing. It was acknowledging the culture. It was a reality that everyone knew, and, and so they philosophized about it. Now, the fact that we don't have much of that going on today shows you how friendship has kind of declined. It's no longer an identifiable thing that people consider worth reflecting on. Uh, but in the ancient world, it was, it was, it was a huge de deal. Aristotle wrote two books on ethics, and he has a lot of quotes in other places as well on, on, on friendship. Um, two books are part of his Nicomian ethics. Um, and they're just dedicated to what is a true friend, the nature of friendship. And Aristotle set the paradigm that was followed throughout the Western tradition up until about the last 200 years. He distinguished between three kinds of friends. There are uh, entertainment friends or pleasure friends. You just like to hang out, hang out with them. It, it, it's, it's pleasurable. They're funny. They're, you know, these are your beer buddies, your golfing buddies or whatever, and you just like to hang out. And that's a legitimate kind of friendship. Then there's purpose friendships, where, where you, you're, you're friends because of a common purpose, and, and it's mutually beneficial to you. These are maybe friends you have at your, at your office, you're their co-workers, or, or friends on a sports team, or things of that sort. So you have friends that are entertaining, friends for a purpose where there's a mutual benefit. But the highest form of friendship was virtue friendship. Virtue friendship, where friendship was seen as a virtue in and of itself. The relationship was a good in and of itself. So, so here, your, your love for the person isn't just based on the fact that you find them pleasurable, and it's not based on the, the, any kind of benefit, worldly benefit you're going to get from it. it. Your love for them is based on their intrinsic worth. You love them as a person in and of themselves without any other necessary reason. And because you love them for their intrinsic worth, this is the one friendship that endures when the friendship is no longer pleasurable, or maybe the friendship is no longer mutually beneficial. Virtue friendship sticks with it. There's a level of commitment in this third category of friendships that is lacking in the first two. And Aristotle considered this virtue friendship to be not only the highest kind of friendship, but the only true friendship. Not that it means to you know, cast aspersion on the other two kinds of friends, but this is the kind of friend that, that he, he thought was the most precious gift that you can have in life. I'll give you a couple quotes here. Uh, Aristotle says, misfortune shows those who are not really friends, not really true friends. Because when misfortune happens and it's no longer pleasurable to be your friend, or maybe it's no longer convenient or beneficial to be your friend, they're gone. But the true friend, the virtue friend who loves you for your intrinsic worth, they stick in there. He also said, a friendship that ends was never a true friendship. 
One of the most painful things in life is when you think you have a true friendship and it turns out it, it was a, a, a mutually beneficial friendship or just an entertainment friendship because the person moves on. That can be very painful. But true friendship lasts forever. Now, it's important to know that he's talking here about that third kind of friendship. Uh, pleasure friendships and, and, and purpose friendships, mutually beneficial friendships, they often come to an end. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You move on or whatever, and that, that, that's just how they go, how it goes. And if you try to hang on to those kind of friendships for life, and you start accumulating all these friends, well, you won't have any space in your life for true friendship. Uh, Aristotle understood that you can only have a few true friends. It's a small cadre. So at one point he says that the person who is trying to be a friend to all, he was a friend to all, ends up being a friend to none. Talking about true friendship. You'll have a lot of acquaintances. Maybe you have a lot of pleasurable friendships. Maybe you'll have a lot of uh, purpose friendships. But if you're trying to be a friend to all the same way, then you won't have virtue friendships. We need all three kinds of friendships. But the virtue friendship is the one that is most praiseworthy and the one that... Uh, 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 Aristotle held up as the highest. So one mark of the true friend, the virtue friend, is that the friendship lasts forever. Uh, another mark is that because you love the person for their intrinsic worth, um, you want the best for them. And Aristotle understood that to want the best for somebody is to agree to help them be the best person they can be. And so Aristotle saw virtue friendship as the foundation for all virtue growing, for all maturing. In fact, Aristotle and Cicero and some others, they held that it's virtually impossible to become as virtuous as you could be alone. To aspire to become the best human being you can become, you need other people in your life to help you do that, to encourage you on, to motivate you. You need people in your life who understand you and who know you. So Aristotle held that virtue friendship where, where we grow virtue, that is the moral fabric of society. It's the glue that holds things together. And he held that, that, that both at an individual level and as a societal level, our virtue will never outrun the depth of our intimate relationships, the depth of our true relationships. Think about that. Was he right about that? To some degree, I think he is. So for, ancients, for ancient people, virtue friendship was seen as being the highest love there is. They didn't look to romance for the highest love. They didn't look to marriage for the highest love. They looked to these friendships as the highest love. If a spouse happened to be your friend in the ancient world, well, you just got lucky. Uh, good for you, but they didn't expect that from marriages. And uh, therefore, it was pretty rare that you had spouses who were friends in the ancient world. Now, I, I want to insert a little comment here. Uh, I, I think there's something wrong and something right about Aristotle's way of looking at this. Um, I think it's, it, it's, it's unfortunate that they didn't see marriage as a place where you cultivate virtue friendship. I think that's unfortunate. But the reason it's unfortunate, I think, is because they were right about friendship love, virtue friendship love. Um, I think marriages should be pursuing friendship love. Uh, and they were right that that is more valuable and more foundational than romantic love. Romantic love is fickle. Somebody say amen. It's here today, gone tomorrow. People get all their hearts broken and stuff. They fall in love and they fall out of love, etc. But see, friendship, where you're committed, you love the, the other person for their intrinsic worth and you want them to be the best they can be and they're hoping the best for you, that should be what a marriage is about. At least part of what the, the, the marriage is about. Um, 
And so I encourage folks, if you're in a, a dating season of life where you're maybe considering a person as a potential possible spouse, personally, I'd recommend that you start as friends. Uh, and, 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 and put off romance and all of that and just cultivate a friendship here. And then if the romance kicks in, wonderful. Uh, it, it's, it's nice frosting on the cake, but you don't want a cake that's all frosting. <laughs> Amen? The, friend, the friendship is what endures forever. And um, yeah, pursue your spouse as your best friend. But one final word I'll say about that is this. Your spouse shouldn't be your only intimate friend. In fact, there's a ton of research now that shows that the strongest marriages are those where the couples have friendships outside the marriage. They, they don't buy this lie that, that, that all relational needs are supposed to be met in a marriage, which no marriage can possibly do. And so cultivate friendships outside the marriage and cultivate your best friendship inside the marriage. Okay, so the church adopted Aristotle's paradigm of these three kinds of friends. But where the ancient Greeks talked about virtue friendships, uh, the church talked about spiritual friendships. And instead of just cultivating virtues, they, they replaced that with just Christ-likeness. So spiritual friends are those who, they enjoy being around each other, and maybe there's some worldly benefit to, to the arrangement. But the goal of the friendship is to inspire one another on into increasing degrees of Christ-likeness. We just sang about it. From glory to glory to glory. Friends are there to say, keep on growing uh, and, 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 and motivating them to, to move in, in a certain direction to become the best kingdom people that they can be. These relationships, these spiritual friendships were important in church history. Uh, we know that there was uh, times where they uh, had, had covenant ceremonies around these friendships and the church sanctioned these. Uh, it was very much like a wedding, a wedding-like ceremony where, where the two's friends would pledge their life to one another and profess their love to one another in language that today strikes us as quasi-romantic. Um, but they, 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 that's how seriously they, they, they took these. In fact, they called these uh, 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 brothering ceremonies. And I have to say, unfortunately, the church has been misogynist throughout most of its history. And, and when I say brothers, it wasn't just a cover for brothers and sisters. It was only brothers. The, the, these were same-gendered uh, male friends who had the ceremony. Women had spiritual friendships for sure, but they weren't celebrated in the church. They just kind of took place on the side, and I apologize to all the women for that fact. But uh, um, sometimes we, we, we know a couple of cases where uh, covenantal friends, these, these, these brothers, spiritual friends, uh, were buried, entombed together, facing one another. And um, one explanation for that, it's a speculation, but... Uh, one idea is that they wanted to, when they, when, on resurrection morning, they wanted to, their first thing they see to be each other. Now, I would have thought Jesus would have been first, but that's how the theory goes. However you interpret it, it just shows the depth of their love and the depth of their loyalty to one another. Now, there, there's um, some scholars who, who make the case that, that these folks were all gay. And I can't prove that none of them were. But this ceremony and this, this romance-like language doesn't prove that they were. Because the truth is that friends have been coveting like this and using this kind of language throughout all of history. You find that both in ancient Greece and in ancient Israel. The most uh, famous example in ancient Israel uh, is David and Jonathan. If you read 1 Samuel, uh, these two guys loved each other deeply. Uh, twice it says in 1 Samuel that, that David loved Jonathan as his own soul. 
It reminds me of something Aristotle said. He's got so many great quotes on friendship. But he says, uh, true friendship is when you, uh, you have two bodies inhabiting one soul. Think about that. And that's kind of how David loved Jonathan. Uh, these two entered into a covenant together, and it, was, it had kind of the trappings of a wedding. Uh, they pledged their love for one another. They exchanged gifts. It was like a wedding, although in this case it was done in private because Saul was going crazy and was, was hunting down David, so they had to do it that way. But it, it, it just shows the depth of their love and commitment. You, you see the depth of David's love after Jonathan dies in battle. And he says this, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How things have changed. I've been a covenant brother with Paul Eddy for 30-some years, and he's never said this to me. I mean, come on. <laughs> what a friend. So, see, again, a lot of folks, some Bible scholars, try to make the case that David and Jonathan were gay lovers. And I can't prove that they weren't, but the fact that they spoke like this doesn't prove that they were, because friends talk like that a lot. That, that's how that language was, was, was common. In fact, as I already showed, that in the ancient world, it was considered that since they weren't looking for, for, for friendship love in their marriage, they considered friendship love to be superior to the love that you have in marriage and, uh, and more pleasurable and more fulfilling than even having sex. And they often expressed that love in extravagant language. And that was true all the way up through the 19th and even into the late 19th century. One of the most celebrated examples of two friends using extravagant love language with one another is Emily Dickinson and Susan uh, Gilbert. She was a mathematician, and they met when Emily was 20. These two, when they were together, they were inseparable. And when they were apart, they exchanged a lot of love letters. Uh, Emily, in particular, used a lot of language that strikes us as romantic. Uh, I'll give you one example. Uh, Susan had been away on a teaching assignment for eight months, and she was a week from returning to, to Emily when Emily wrote this letter to her. And one line of it goes like this. The expectation once more to see your face again makes me feel hot and feverish, and my heart beats so fast. I go to sleep at night, and the first thing I know, I'm sitting there wide awake and clasping. Hot and feverish. Now, again, there's a lot of people uh, who assume that, that they, they were lesbian lovers. In fact, I, I'm told that there's a movie out uh, that is premised on that claim. And I can't prove that they weren't. And I have to frankly admit that when you read Emily's letters, uh, some of the, the language is, is off the charts. It's over the top, uh, even by the standards of her day. But then again, she's one of America's most celebrated poets and authors, and she was prone towards extravagant language. She knew how to use words. And, and her, uh, Susan, girl that she had this spiritual friendship with, married her brother and had three kids. Uh, but they stayed friends for all of their life. And so, so it, it, it may be that it sounds gay to us because we only use language like that when we're talking about romance. We don't have this category of, of, of spiritual friends. And so now it's easy for us to, read, to take our view of, of this language and project it back on people in the past and think, oh, they must have been gay. But it could just be that we're reading back into it. In any case, up until fairly recently in history, there was a, a place for these true friendships, these spiritual friendships, intimate friendships. It was an acknowledged reality in the culture. Two or more people covenant together to support one another and to inspire one another to be the best selves that they can possibly be. Not only was there a place for it in society, but it was an esteemed place, considered the highest of all loves. 
And up until fairly recently in history, the last two centuries or so, uh, it was seen as being extremely important both for individuals and the society as a whole that these friendships take place, as I, I said earlier. For Aristotle, it's the glue that holds the moral fabric of society together. For Plato, he thought that, that uh, he recommended that militaries be put together based on true friends because true friends will fight in defense of their friend more, than, more valiantly, more courageously than they would t defend themselves. And throughout history, it was understood that these true friends, the spiritual friends, virtue friends, uh, this is the place where our character is most formed. Aristotle, Cicero, all these ancient folks, they had this insight. Our character is formed most by the, the, the folks that we are intimate with, that we invite in on our lives. Uh, they understood that uh, this context of intimacy between loving friends, uh, this is where someone gets to know you and love you and gain a, a, a wisdom on, on, on how you operate and therefore has wisdom to speak into your life. This is the context where, where people know you well enough to discern maybe what the Spirit of God wants to work on and what you're supposed to leave alone for the time being. Uh, this is the context where it's, people know one another enough so that they can know when something's wrong, when something's off, when, when, when someone's going astray. They, they, other people don't maybe notice anything, but because you're on the inside, your lives are intertwined, you know that about each other. This is the context where you know when to encourage, you know when to challenge, you know when to speak, you know when to listen, you know when to just let go. Uh, it takes a lot of wisdom to know how things apply in, in a person's life. Uh, this is the context, Aristotle understood this, where, where ethical questions should be worked out in a person's life, the shoulds of our life. You need someone on the inside to help, help, help speak into that. Because the truth is this, our lives, all of our lives, are incredibly complex, uh, and they're fragile. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of love and a lot of commitment to get on the inside of that complexity and to know where the fragile parts are, to know how to operate on the inside. If someone comes to a stranger or maybe just a mere acquaintance and decides to challenge them on something and this person's not invited them in on their life and doesn't have any kind of intimate relationship with them, doesn't really know them that well, well, it's like a bull in a china shop. You barge in there with your truth and you could be breaking things all over the place because you don't know the person. You're not on the inside of that. And even if the person has the best of intentions in confronting another person, um, well, what it does, it comes across as judgmental because you haven't been invited. And, and, and that causes the person to get defensive and more resistant to what you had to say. And so it can do a lot of harm, but it really does any good. That's why we always teach here at Woodland Hills Church that unless a person has invited you in on their life to, have, to offer advice on, on how to live and, and things of that sort, unless that's the case, we're allowed one opinion of people, and that is that Jesus died for them, and therefore they have unsurpassable worth, and we agree with God about that and reflect that agreement by how we think about them, speak about them, speak to them, and how we treat them. Amen? So, amen. It doesn't do any good to see something that you don't like and... A lot of Christians do this. They, here's a Bible verse that refutes you. Now that's bull in a china shop thinking. You don't know what you're breaking. We all need one or more spiritual friends in our life. That are there not just because they think we're funny and entertaining and not because they, there's some benefit in there, but because they love us for who we are. They honor the intrinsic worth of who we are. We all need one or more intimate friends in our life who are with us going to be seeking first the kingdom of God in this relationship and in both of our lives. 
and motivating us and inspiring us uh, to go deeper in that kingdom first mindset. The truth is that God never intended us to walk this journey alone. And I think Aristotle and Cicero are right, are right that, that we can't walk this spiritual journey alone. Um, we'll never become as, as Christ-like as we could be unless we have people speaking into our life and motivating us on, inspiring us on. Uh, the truth is that we're made in the image of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that God is love itself and God is friendship itself. Amen? And so we're made in that image. And one of the ways we reflect the image of God is when we cultivate intimate friendships with other folks that are aspiring to mirror the love of the triune God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfect friends. And, 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 and so our, seeking first the kingdom in a relationship means that we are trying to have, reflect that kind of love in how we relate to, to each other and we motivate each other to move in that direction. We're made to be known and we're made to be loved as known and we're made to be encouraged and we're wired such that we need to be challenged if we're going to become all that God knows that, that we can be. So we here in, 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 in our culture right now, friendship is, is really not a thing. It's, 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 it's kind of accidental. If it happens, it happens. There's not much intentionality to it. There's not much structure around it. It's, not, it's just kind of been diffused. It's seen as a non-essential. It's nice if you have them, but non-essential. But see, from a biblical perspective, because we're made in the image of the triune God, friendships, being known deeply, and, and having our lives intertwined with others, a few others, uh, is absolutely essential to our being all that we can be in Christ. So here at Woodland Hills Church, we have the audacity of wanting to recover this ancient tradition, this, an- this a- ancient practice, or even this ancient in- institution. But we've got to know as we embark on this that there's a number of things in our culture that work against it. It's not easy because there's so much about the culture that, that, that moves in a different direction. There's a reason why this kind of friendship disappeared. And we, we'll have to push back against that if we're going to be cultivating the, these, these uh, spiritual friendships. We need to be aware of these things if we're going to resist them. Because it's part of the air that we breathe. Now, uh, uh, starting October 18th, we're going to have a class on spiritual friendships. And they'll go a lot deeper with this than I can possibly go here. Um, Right now, I, I, I'd like to end the message by just giving you one example of a kind of thing that we have to push back against. Uh, Wesley Hill, he, 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 he names five myths that we believe as a culture and that work against friendship. I'm just going to share one of them. Uh, it is the, what I've called the myth of romantic love. And it saturates our culture. It's everywhere. It's part of the air that we breathe. Today, everything that used to be said about virtue friendship, spiritual friendship, true friendship— all that used to be said about that now is said only of romantic relationships. Over the last two centuries, we've seen this, this, this concept of romantic love, which some argue didn't even exist in the ancient world. It's a rather recent invention. But this romantic love has just gobbled up friendship love and swallowed it, absorbed it. And so people now live in this story. Here's the, the myth of romantic love, that, that someday you're going to meet that, that one right person, uh, that, that, your, that person will be your soulmate. That person will complete you. That person will be your best friend. That person will fulfill you to the point where you're not, you'll need no other. And then you'll get married and live happily ever after. So the story goes. And, 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 and that's the kind of context. And in our culture, the only context where you can use this extravagant love language. And since marriage usually involves sex, well, that love language gets associated with sexual uh, relationships, sexual intimacy. And then comes along Sigmund Freud, God bless him, um, 
Most of his theories have been debunked, but there's one aspect of Freud that has permeated our culture. Uh, Freud held that, that uh, the, the main drive in every individual's life is their libido. Their libido, their, their, their sex drive. And so he, he viewed all relationships as, as having a, uh, at least a hidden sexual dimension to them. The sexual, and, and, and the road of intimacy is a road to having sex. The ultimate goal is always sexual. I think Freud had an issue he, he deal with. <laughs> See, and, and, and so what that's done is it's made, uh, you know, straight people paranoid about having same gender intimate relationships. It's like, oh, is, is, is there sex going on here? It's, uh, this is why guys in Western culture today, guys in particular, have a hard time uh, expressing affection for one another. Certainly having any kind of public displays of affection. Uh, it's, you know, I went to Cambodia about 20 years ago on a missions trip here from Woodland Hills. And um, uh, I was, it, was ama- it was amazing because you have these men and women walking down the streets all over the place with their arms around each other. Uh, sometimes they're holding hands. Uh, sometimes they're, they're kissing one another, long hugs. The first impression I had when I arrived there was like, man, Cambodia's all gay. <laughs> they're all gay. Because I never see straight people acting like that over here in the States. But as I learned that that wasn't the case, uh, it just made me, as I looked upon this, think, man, Western men are wound up tight when it comes to showing affection. We are just so constricted. Our culture used to be more like Cambodia. Here's a little fact I learned. Uh, I think I got it from from Hill's book. I might have got it from somewhere else, though. But uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, around 1830 or so, he, he walks into a store, this is like three, 30 years before he becomes president. He's a low legal clerk here, and he just moved into town, and he's got an apartment, but he doesn't have a bed. So he goes to the, the store to, to get some supplies to build a bed. Uh, well, it turns out it's $17 for these supplies, and Abraham didn't have that. Uh, so, so he says, can I get some store credit? Uh, give me a couple of months to pay this off. And the store clerk just happened to like Abraham, and, and, and his, his, his clerk's name was Joshua Speed. And so he says to Abraham, well, look, at, I, I live right up, I own the store and I live right up, upstairs and I have a really huge bed. Uh, you're happy to share the bed with me. And Abraham says, great. And so the next four years, these guys slept together and I mean sleep. Uh, they, they, they shared that bed together. And that actually wasn't uncommon in those days. Uh, women, men sleeping together um, for various reasons. Sometimes even if there was an available bed, they slept together. Among other reasons, because uh, they didn't have central heating back then, and winters got cold, and two bodies are warmer than one, so they, on cold nights, they snuggled up together. That would never happen now. Not with straight guys anyways, it wouldn't happen. It reminds me of that um, scene, and uh, I'm dating myself. Some of you know where I'm going to go. Trains, planes, and automobiles with, with <laughs> John Candy and uh, who's the other guy? Steve Martin. And oh, so they, they, it was a cold night. They're sharing a bed because they're, you know, trying to get home. And they wake up and they're all cuddling together. And suddenly Steve hollers out, those, that, those aren't pillows. <laughs> and they get up and they're like, oh, what about my football game? Hey, what about my game? It just shows the awkwardness that, that comes around uh, physical affection because of this myth of romantic love. This myth of romantic love has also done a number on, 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 on single folks. Uh, it's relegated them to second-class citizens to the degree that we buy into it. You know, in the past, uh, in, the, in the Christian tradition, people who took vows of celibacy were honored. 
Uh, that was a praiseworthy thing. What a noble thing to just uh, to, to be singularly devoted to the kingdom. And, and, and it was held up as a, as a praiseworthy thing. Today, because of this myth of romantic love, there's a stigma put on singles. The assumption is that, you know, to the reader we, we buy into the story, that these folks, they're not yet complete. They're, they're, they're not yet full. They haven't found that one true love. There must be an aching, lonely heart, and they're thinking about nothing else but drinking from that silver cup of, of romantic love that alone gives life meaning. Yeah, it is comical but tragic. In our culture, romantic love has swallowed up true friendship. And what's that done is it's invalidated singleness as a calling. Or even as just a situation, it's invalidated that. And this myth of romantic love, at the same time, has invalidated true friendships, spiritual friendships, deep friendships that are satisfying and fulfilling and are the highest form of love. A lady captures this loss of this spiritual friendship category without knowing it. She captures this in a, uh, a piece that she wrote for the Boston Globe. This is an excerpt from Carrie uh, English. Uh, the piece is called A Bridesmaid's Lament. And uh, she was best friends with this lady who uh, was now being married and, and asked her to be the bridesmaid. And uh, after the wedding, she wrote this. She says, In the vows they wrote... The bride and groom gushed about how lucky they were to have found someone who loved them unconditionally. Someone who made any place home. Someone who was their best friend. And I stood there under the flower-covered gazebo thinking, why not me? I was thinking, she loves me unconditionally. The house we shared always felt like home. I thought we were best friends. See, that by having... Reserving all of that extravagant love language just for marriage, she gets caught on the outside. And she wasn't jealous of her friend marrying. Uh, she says that marriage is great and it deserves all the fanfare we give it. Yay! But doesn't our friendship count for something? Shouldn't our friendship also be acknowledged? Shouldn't there be some kind of covenant that, 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 that we have? Because we did have a covenant. We made promises to each other. Why does it have to be this all or nothing thing? That now, now you, you have your real best friend. What, what was I, just a warm-up act? And see, I think she's hitting the nail on the head. There's, there's no category for this lady to talk about and deal with her, her, her relationship with her friend that just got married. We used to have a place for this, an esteemed place for this. We used to acknowledge this and support this. And as I've shown here, it, it was considered to be very, very important for the individuals and for the society as a whole to have this but we've lost this. That's why many single folks, they feel a great loss when their best friend gets married. Because of this myth of romantic love that tells us that marriage you know, is, can meet all your relational needs, these folks find themselves often on the outside. Because of that myth, often couples kind of get self-enclosed. We are complete within ourselves. We need no others. And so the old best friend gets left behind. They go off on their honeymoon alone and... Uh, and the friendship begins to fade. One last little historical tidbit I'll, I'll share with you. Uh, and I may have got this from Wesley's book or from other, some other source, but I didn't know this, but when honeymoon started to become a thing, it was in the mid-19th century among wealthy people, when, it, when, when, when that idea came about, the couple would go on a honeymoon, but they would take friends and family with them. And, and uh, yeah, they, they all went in, in, in celebrating this. Because what, 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 what that was communicating is that Okay, this marriage is something new. It adds to our social network, but it, it, it should in any way compromise our social network. 
the marriage is embedded in a community of folks who are there to help it and support it and all the rest. But you keep your other relationships. Yeah, this is a new thing, but, 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 but it doesn't change the old thing. And so you keep your friends and you all go celebrate this together. You do it as a community. That's why Emily Dickinson was able to stay best friends with Susan even though she was married to her brother and had three kids. They just embraced Emily as part of their family. Uh, the, the, the family units were more porous and best friends were, 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 were part of that. I think we need to get back there. In losing this category of spiritual friendship, we've lost a great, great deal. That's why we believe that it's time for us to start recovering it, getting back at that. Um, as I said, well, well, we'll talk more about this as the series goes on, and we have this class starting October 18th that you can take and, and, and to be part of that. But um, to recover this category of spiritual friendship, we are going to have to be intentional at pushing back on the myth of romantic love, but also a number of other aspects in our culture that work against it. Lies that we believe, and it's not our fault, it's part of the air that we breathe. But we have to wake up to that in order to push against it. For right now, I want to leave you with this challenge. Um, I mean, some of you, I'm sure, have friendships that are just like the ones I described, spiritual friends, and, and, and blessed are you, and fortunate are you. But most people don't have that. And so uh, those who don't, I, I want to encourage you to start a process of discerning and ask God to help you discern. First, how maybe perhaps you can bring uh, the kingdom first mindset to the friendships you already have. Maybe you've got some entertaining friendships and some purpose friendships. Consider the possibility of, of, of moving in a direction of spiritual friendships and introducing that into the relationship, whether it's one or two or three people. It usually can't be done with more than four. That's kind of the, the max uh, on that. It's, that's also ancient wisdom. But, 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 but think about that. And it could be something as easy as saying this. Hey, how about if twice a month when we hang out, uh, we, we talk about spiritual things. Uh, we maybe study the Bible. We pray together. Uh, we check in on one another, see how we're doing. Uh, would you, how about, would you like to help one another become more and more Christ-like? So that does that. And just start walking down that path. Uh, if you don't have any relationship with believers that, that you could uh, build on, maybe all your friends are unbelievers, um, well then still be in a process of discerning and asking God to uh, lead you to a person who could perhaps also want to enter into this kind of relationship. Maybe it'd be a person that you meet on the, in the gathering groups or, or in some other context, but keep your eyes open and praying for this kind of, of relationship. All right. Uh, uh, Tuesday, don't forget, uh, we'll be interviewing uh, Wesley Hill. Uh, and we'll be talking about his book, and you might want to be going out and get that book. It's, it's, a, it's a good one. Wesley, I get some royalties from this, all right? All right. Good. Um, we have prayer available if you're part of the congregation here. The prayer team will be up front. If you're part of the, the podgregation, um, you can get on prayer online. So I encourage you, if you have any need that could use prayer, uh, check out those folks. Uh, don't, if if um, the gathering groups are meeting on whatever, they, whenever they meet, at different times, I guess. But you check out the gathering groups. In fact, that's a place where you can start discerning. Is there someone here who maybe uh, would like to enter into a, a, a spiritual friendship with you? And if you're going to be coming to the congregation uh, next, next week, uh, please let us know so we can register. Uh, get your kids registered so we have enough folks back there to be doing children's church while we're in the auditorium doing adult church. Lord, I pray that this word just lands and, 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 and simmers in our hearts. And open our eyes as we begin to see how we can recover this ancient tradition of, of spiritual friends. We want to grow. We want to be encouraged and challenged. Help us to be opening up, pushing back on the culture to open up our lives to one another as you direct us. 
so we can be all that we can be for you in the kingdom, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys.